See you. Oh, there you go. I'm on now. If you have your Bibles, open to Nehemiah chapter 1 is where we'll be today. It's so weird not to say 1 Corinthians. We've been in that for literally six months since the beginning of the year. Uh, we're we're in somewhere else now. And so, uh, was that a good woohoo? Or was that a praise the Lord we're done with? The, I don't know how to take that. Uh, we're, we're doing a standalone uh, sermon today. Uh, and we're doing it out of Nehemiah, and if uh, you've been here for a while, you may have looked up and said, that looks eerily familiar. And in full transparency, I have preached the sermon before. No, I'm not phoning it in, uh, but as a little, I was beginning to think about what I want to do for one week, one alone series, God just kind of brought me back to this one sermon in Nehemiah that I did back in 2018. A uh, considerable number of you in the church are new. Some of you don't even remember what I did yesterday, so let alone what happened uh, five years ago. Uh, but all that to say, I want to be transparent about that, but I feel like this, is, even though I've preached it before, I feel like this is still a fresh word for what God wants us today. I will tell you, starting next week, we're going to start a new series. It'll be a four-week series called On Mission, and it'll be talking about, I'm challenging you guys as an entire church to go on mission. Right, we're going on a mission trip together, and I don't want to play my hand too much, but come next week, we're starting a series on that, being challenged us all to go on a mission trip together, and we'll talk about that. So with that being said, turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1 uh, as we jump into uh, what we're going to look at today. I love Nehemiah. It's such an interesting book. And I think to help understand Nehemiah, you have to understand the setting of Nehemiah, and to help just wrap your mind on what's going on. Again, this is a letter, I'm sorry, this is history going on. If you pick up a historical book and read about American history, civil, whatever sort of stuff, it's much like that. You're learning about Jewish history, about the history of God's people. And they have a specific thing going on that Nehemiah is writing in the context of, if you will. And to help you best wrap your mind around it, I think this picture best illustrates what's, uh, we'll do the other one, the picture, if we got that one. That's my fall on that. We got, there it is. Uh, in, in 2007, 2008, uh, there is what I, I've dubbed Snowmageddon, if you guys ever remember that, where we got such a crazy amount of snow, they literally shut down the highways. Everyone was losing their minds. I don't know if you know this. If you're new to Oklahoma, if we get just a little bit of powder, like, on the ground, the, the stores sell out of everything, everyone, it's like pandemonium is breaking loose. We have no idea what to do with ourselves because we don't know what to do with snow. And this was like the first time we got a legit snow going on. They actually called it a blizzard. And, that, and it was crazy because people would shut down. They shut down the highways. No one's supposed to be on it. People are getting stuck on side of roads. And, and my family has a, uh, a gifting, I'll, I'll say is that, that when they say, hey, whatever you do, don't get out in the snow, we're like, bet. And we go out and try to do it. And so my dad and us will get out in a truck and we start driving, see if we can really, we'll see if we really get stuck. And so we're going out and all these cars are stuck. And I kid you not, that's a picture of me and my brother and stuff. That that's probably like number 10 or 12 of cars that we are pushing out of the snow to get unstuck. And we're driving all over, like trying to save people, act like we're heroes and stuff. I mean, we're going on the highway where no one was and we're hitting snow drifts that are literally like exploding in front of us and we think it's so cool. And then we realize later that could have been a car hidden underneath it and that would have been a really terrible idea. But in the moment, it was fun. Like things that obviously no woman was in the car with us or they'd have shut down immediately what's going on, right? No common sense was in that vehicle. Now, and I tell you this because people lost power. People's lost their mind. It's amazing it's amazing when the infrastructure we're used to caves, how quickly the world crumbles around us, right? 
if you've lost power, I'll say more for a day, I'll say even for a couple hours, and you don't have internet in the house, I mean, you're praying for Jesus to come back, right? Lord, I don't know when, but now's a good time because I can't stand another minute in this house if we don't have Disney Junior playing on the TV right now to relieve some of the stress. I, I tell you that because you, to understand, what's that, imagine that chaos that you guys I know have all experienced on a small scale of whenever things just get out of whack is what's going on in Nehemiah. I mean, imagine the effects and chaos of losing electricity, losing our infrastructure permanently for 140 years. What would the United States look like? The protection, we would be sitting ducks if suddenly, man, it just, there's nothing we do to protect ourselves. Our capitals, all the things that we held as strong positions in our, our, our nation were destroyed. What, what would happen to us? It sets the stage for Nehemiah and what's going on in the text that we're looking at today. You see, Nehemiah, to give you understanding, some background, as they had a picture a second ago, uh, Nehemiah comes some 140 years after that they've been going through this more or less perpetual darkness. You see, in 586 B.C., you're reading about 2 Chronicles chapter 36, the, the people of God continue to rebel and disobey God's word, and God says, listen, I'm done. You're not going to listen. I, I'm going, my, my judgment will come. And he allows other people, he allows other nations to come and conquer them as a sign of judgment. And so you have the Babylonians come and invade, and they destroy the temple of the Jewish people. Which back in that time, the Jewish temple was their safe, it was their source of strength, it was their identity. And it was stripped. And for 70 years, they sat in exile, being uh, uh, dominated by a, a foreign oppressors. And finally, after 70 years, God releases his hand of judgment and allows him. And so you have in 516 B.C., uh, the first guy named Zerubbabel comes back and begins to rebuild the temple. And then, and then just 57 years later after that, Ezra leaves. And you see in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, Ezra leaves. He begins rebuilding the people back in this place of Jerusalem. And 14 years later is where we pick up right here in Nehemiah in 445 B.C. Nehemiah returns to begin to build the wall. You say, what's the big deal? Well, imagine if we didn't have our protection. We're just sitting like anybody could attack us at any moment. So that's what's going on. They are sitting ducks, and Nehemiah realizes it, and this is what's going on. So the book of Nehemiah covers a span of 12 years to give you perspective of what's going on. And we're going to pick up the very beginning, what's going on in Nehemiah, and see what applies for us today. And so if you have your Bibles, follow along with me as we read Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 2 uh, through 2.9. It says, the word of Nehemiah's son of Hekeliah. During the month of Chislev, which Chislev, you don't know, is under the Jewish calendar from November to December. It says, in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa. Now, again, those are words you don't understand. Susa would be modern-day southern Iran. It was a place where Persian kings would go in the wintertime to escape the winter weather. As a matter of fact, if you ever read the book of Esther, it took place in Susa. Daniel, when he has his divisions in Daniel chapter 8, took place in Susa. This is a well-known place. And so he's in Susa in the wintertime, and it says this, Hananiah, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah. And I questioned them about Jerusalem, the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. Judah is the province. Think of Oklahoma like Judah, and Jerusalem is the city, Oklahoma City. And he's like, what's going on in Jerusalem? How's the temple doing? And what does he says? They said to me, the remnant and the providence who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned. I mean, literally, they're one, one enemy away from being conquered right back to where they were. Everything is extreme vulnerability. And what happens, it says, when I heard these words, 
I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of the heavens. I I said, Lord, the God of heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. Let let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer. That that I know now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. I I confess the sins we've committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned. We've acted corruptly towards you and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. Like, please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even, even though your exiles were banished to the farthest horizons, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I will choose to have my name dwell. That They are your servants and your people. You redeemed them by your great power and strong hand. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants to that of your servant who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. And at the time, I was the king's cupbearer. During the month of Nisan, Nisan would have been March or April, so this is four months after he's had this whole thing going on in him, four months of stewing, mourning. Listen to what happens. This is in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. When the wine was set before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. And I had never been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why do you look so sad? Like when you aren't sick. Like this is nothing but sadness of the, horse, of the heart. Sorry, I was overwhelmed with fear. And replied to the king, may the king live forever. But why should I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king asked me, what is your request? So I prayed to the God of the heavens. And answer the king, like if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah, to the city where my ancestors are buried, so that I may rebuild it. And the king with the queen sitting beside him asked, how, how long will your journey take, and when will you return? So I gave him a definite, definite time, and it pleased the king to send me. And I also said to the king, like, listen, if it pleases the king, let, him, let me have letters written to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates River, so that they will grant me safe passage until I reach Judah. And let me have a letter written to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to rebuild the gates and the temple's fortresses, the city wall, and the home where I will live. The king granted my request. Now listen to this. For the gracious hand of my God was on me. And I went to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. And the king had also sent officers of the infantry and cavalry with me. What an interesting situation. Nehemiah is teaching us something about this in this passage. He's showing us what it looks like when you have community in action. More so, I think Nehemiah is teaching us something more that uh, that I can best relate with this picture that I have next right here. This is a picture of my my last house I actually own. I came home uh, from church after one Sunday, about six, seven years ago. And my daughter, this is her room, Addie's room, she goes to her room and she says, Dad, I think Lexi, which is our little 20-pound dog, uh, peed in the carpet. And I'm like, oh, I, t- I wish I got rid of that dog a long time ago. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm fuming. I go in there and I look and, and there is a pool in her room. And I'm like, if Lexi did that, that's impressive. There's no way that dog did that. And for whatever reason, because I'm a man, I put my hand in it to see what it is, you know what I mean? And, and when I do, water just begins gushing between my hands, and I realize we have a busted pipe in the foundation. And so my dad comes over, and we begin to peel back the carpet, we begin to break up the concrete, begin to dig, and find this little pin-sized hole in the copper pipes in our foundation. Soon after, we get other leaks in others' rooms to the point that we have to re-plumb the entire house. 
Now listen, that's my house. I own it, and I felt a responsibility. I had to take care of it. I, I compare that to when I lived in Afton. When I lived in Afton, I rented a home for one year. And I'll never forget, I get up and leave. I used to drive a school bus for a living. And when I leave, Emily calls me and says, hey, the, something's wrong with the plumbing. It's not working. And I said, well, I'll call Bobby, who's the landlord, and have him take care of it. I, I no more get on the bus, and Bobby calls me and says, hey, I heard you got plumbing issues. I'm like, dude, how do you hear about this stuff? He goes, man, you just live in a small town. Word gets around. I'm like, I can't even flush my toilet with you not finding out what I'm doing. And so I tell Bobby, I said, hey, my plumbing's messed up. He says, I'll be over. When I get home, Bobby and his son are outside digging pipes in the backyard trying to fix the issue. I come out and look at him and I said, hey, Bobby, you got it? If you need anything, let me know. I'm going outside. And I go sit on the couch and just chill. I, I just relax. Why, why? Because that's not my house. There's a difference between me owning and me renting a house, right? Like for me, and I'm not judging anybody that rents, there's nothing wrong with that, but in my attitude, I'll say this. When it came to owning the house, as me, I cared about improving. But as a renter, I just cared about maintaining. As an owner, I had a responsibility to fix it before I leave. But as a renter, I, I can leave before it's fixed. You know what? You got plumbing issues, man. I'm going to move out. This is your problem, Bobby, not mine. I'm leaving. I'm going to the next place down the road. As an owner, listen, I understand that was my problem. As a renter... I had the understanding that it was someone else's problem. Why, why am I telling you that? Because Nehemiah here shows us what it looks like to take ownership in the kingdom of God. And there's a difference between owning and renting. My question to you is this. Do you take ownership in this church? Do you take ownership in God's kingdom? Do you take ownership in God's mission, the great commission that he's called upon us? Can, can I say this? Listen, just because you're here doesn't mean it's your church. Just because you cracked open your Bible doesn't mean it's your mission. There's a difference between owning and renting. And, and I just say this, listen, churches are filled with renters, but very few owners. Jesus would say this himself. He said the harvest is plentiful, but what? The workers are few. I, I got a lot of work to do, but I don't got enough people who want to own this field and act like it's their own. Ultimately, the big idea that we're going to look at is this, is this. God's people are called to take ownership. And my challenge for you today is to ask yourself that question, am I taking ownership truly? And so let's look at Nehemiah's example. Let me just be clear real quick. These are not commands in Nehemiah. This is, this is history. When we read this, we look at his example and say, what example has he set? Hebrews 12 tells us that since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's take off everything that hinders us and slows us down. In other words, everyone we've seen, let's look at their example and follow their example, what it looks like. And so what example do we see with Nehemiah? Like how does Nehemiah own it? Well, the first thing I want you to see in verses 1 through 10 is this. He perceives the need. No, Nehemiah perceives the need. He realizes there's something wrong. Look at how God's stirring in Nehemiah in chapter verse 2. It says, as soon as he had a brother from Judah, someone from the region came in. He says, I question him about Jerusalem. It's on his mind. Nehemiah is thinking about this all the time, and the first moment he has, he's like, man, what's going on? I want to know. They didn't have Twitter back then. They didn't have tweets popping up telling them. They didn't have Google searches. He, the first chance he gets, he's like, man, would you tell me what's going on? It's on his mind. And he hears the news. Not only is it on his mind, you see in verse 4, it's also on his heart. He says, I heard, I sat down and wept, I mourned for a number of days in fasting and praying. We, we get the impression from later on that Nehemiah is not one of those soft guys because when he comes to the king sad, the king says, man, you've never been sad in my presence before. 
He's not this weeping guy that cries over everything, little thing that happens. Obviously, this is something that has really moved him. It's on his mind. It's on his heart. And even more so, you see in verse 5 through 10, it's in his prayers. When he prays to God, he is praying solely about the issue going on back miles, miles away to his hometown. Like, listen, this is God's territory. This is God's place. There's something going on here. I love verse 5. He says, I said to the Lord, and he begins to pray. What's so interesting you see in Nehemiah's prayer is an example we see over and over through Scripture what our prayers like should look like. He starts out by talking about praise and adoration. He's like the God of heavens, the great awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant. He prays and, God, prays and worships God. God, I know who you are. You, I, there is reverence for your name. He goes on to confess. He moves to a time of confession and repentance in verse 6. He says, I confess the sins we have committed against you. I've sinned against you. My family sinned against you. Th- this is our fault. We did this. We brought this on ourselves. I acknowledge that. You were righteous in what you were doing. He proclaims God's uh, promises. Look at verse um, 8. He says, please remember what you have commanded your servant. If you are faithful, I will scatter. You did exactly what you said you did. But your word also says this. If we'll repent, if we'll be obedient, you'll bring us back. Can I, can I say there is something power to praying the promises God has told us? Satan will tell us lies. Satan will tell you you're unworthy. Satan will tell you you're never good enough. But when I pray scripture to God, I'm praying the promises back to him. My favorite is 1 John 1, 9, when I feel like, man, God can never forgive me. But his word in 1 John 1, 9 says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. When I pray that truth to God, listen, there's power in that. God, your word tells me this. And my feelings tell me something different, but your word tells me this. I'm leaning on that truth. I'm leaning on that promise. More so, I love the very end of his prayer is this in verse 11. He petitions God, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your Send me. Send me. Like, God is stirring in Nehemiah. My question to you is this. How has God been stirring in you? When it comes to his kingdom work, what are things that you see that you notice? Like, man, something needs to happen here. I've heard people before, like, man, what, where's missions? I, like, what, is God stirring you missions? Is God stirring you discipleship you see lacking? Is God stirring building needs? Is God stirring people in your neighborhood? Man, who's going to reach them? What, what is God stirring to you? And can I just say this? If he hasn't, my question to you is why not? Why hasn't God been stirring you? Because last time I checked, his job is not done. The reality is for many of us, we're not plugged in enough to realize the needs around us. We're not attentive to the needs. Can I tell you something about my house? If you come in my house, you'll walk in and go, man, it's a beautiful house. You'll see everything perfect about it. But you know what? Being an owner of the house, I see the flaws. I can point out every little thing that needs to be fixed. Yeah, that, that cabinet creaks when you turn it. Yeah, we got a crack in the tile right here. Man, I got this going on. We have this issue. I can tell you the needs. Why? Because I am attentive to the needs of my house. My, my question is, when you come into God's house, are you attentive and acknowledge and see the needs, what's going on? Do you look around and it's like, man, I see a need here. What's going to be done? Most of us are not attentive. He perceives the need. The second thing you see in verse 11 through 2, 5 is this. He takes the initiative. I, I love, what does he say? He, he prays to God. He says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to my prayer. But he says this. Give your servant success today. Notice he doesn't say this. God, would you send someone? Man, would you stir in someone's heart to do this? I, I really wish someone would do this. He's like, God, let me do it. Help me do it. He isn't praying for someone else, but he's saying what? Equip me. Can I tell you the difference between owners and renters? Owners take initiative. Renters do, renters do what they're told. It, it's the difference between active and passive responsibility. I know without a doubt nearly every person in this room, if I were to come to ask you to do something, you would do it. 
But that's called passive responsibility. Active responsibility is you see a crack, you see a need, you just take care of it. Because why? This is my house, this is my work, this is my calling. And the question, do you take initiative with it? I, I think of this illustration with my girls and the dog. We got a dog that was a puppy, it's not anymore. I told them it was going to happen, you know what happened? They were interested when it's a puppy, they're not anymore. And so every day I got to come in, hey, did you feed the dogs? Oh, yeah, I forgot. And I always go, how would you like if daddy didn't feed you? You know, and I start lecturing and doing all the stuff that I said I would never say that my parents said. And now I'm eating crow because, listen, kids just bring out the best in me. And I tell them, and here's the thing, listen, I know my kids love the dog. I know they care about it, but here's the reality. If I did not tell them to feed that dog, that dog would starve to death. They will do exactly as they're told. My, my heart is for them to take ownership of that dog and say, listen, if I don't feed this dog, this dog's going to die. And this animal, this creature, that's not mine, that's there, is, is my responsibility. And too often we walk in the church and we do the same thing. I hear, I hear stuff like this all the time. That, that's not my job. That's not my calling. That's not my skill set. Can I just say this? What I see time and time in Scripture is this. Where God stirs, God calls. And where God calls, God equips. He equips you. I think of Watermark Church when we were visiting them, learning a lot about how to lead our church and stuff. One of their pastors at that time said this. He said it cracks him up every time someone comes like, you know, pastor, we really need to do this. We really need a college ministry going. His response is, great, man, I've been praying for the Lord to bring someone. It sounds like you're the person. Whoa, whoa, ah, man, college kids don't like me. I'm old, I'm whatever. I don't do that. He's like, no, God's clearly stirring in your heart. You know, it's interesting, I've been reading up on 1 Timothy about qualifications of church leadership, talking about elders and deacons. Not not a single one talks about skill set. It all talks about character qualities. God's not looking for skilled, perfect people. He's looking for people who are just willing. Send me, God. I I may not have the tools, I may not have the resources, but I'm willing. I'll, I'll do it. Let me say it like this. To perceive a need and do nothing is to contribute to the problem. When you see an issue, and you're like, man, something needs to be done, and you walk away, is you're just adding to the issue. As a matter of fact, the better word I'd say is, is negligence. Do you know what the definition of negligence, negligence is? I can't say the word negligence. It's this. It's failure to exercise the care and that a reasonably prudent person would exercise in like circumstances. It's realizing there's a need, I should do something. Instead, you pass it off. So my question is, do you take the initiative? The last thing I think is so beautiful you see is not only does he perceive the need, not only does he take the initiative, but look what he does next in verse 6 to 9. He begins to seek out the means. He's like, God, I know you're stirring in me. I see what's going on. I'm going. And he's like, I'm going to figure out how to make this happen. I don't have money. I don't have tools. I'm not a construction guy. I'm not a leader. But I'm going to go and look what happens in verse 6 through 9. It says the king and queen were seated beside him and said, how long will your journey take? So he gave him a definitive date. He doesn't say, we know it takes 12 years. I don't know if he said 12 years. Can you imagine going to your boss like, listen, I feel like I need to go do this. I need to take off of work for 12 years. Oh, by the way, I need you to pay me. Can you, can you do that? I know it won't benefit you. I know we're a conquer people, but I, I need you to do this. And not only that, it says the king was pleased to send him. And then Nehemiah, I think, begins to get brave. He begins to get bold here. Once he sees the king's okay, look what he starts doing. I mean, you can put yourself in his shoes. As a cupbearer to the king, he could be killed for just even raising his voice. For being sad in the king's presence, lesser people who have been cupbearers have died for it. And he says, well, can I go for a defi- just amount of time? And then look what he says next. He says, if it pleases the king, let me have letters written to the governors of the regions west of the Euphrates rivers. So they'll grant me safe passage. 
can I, can, let me try to modernize. He's like, listen, can, can I have your pipe pass? Like, I need to get around. I need to get quick. I need to get easy. Can I take your pipe pass and get around? I know it's going to charge you. Would you do it? And he says, oh, yeah, one more thing. Look at verse 8. He says, let me have letters written to the keepers of the king's forest. You know your lumber yard where you store up the best of the best? You've got that cedar that you're going to put in your house? He says, can I go and ask them to provide all the timber, to build back a wall for an entire city? Hey, can you foot the bill? I'm sad. I'm going to go for a long time. I want your pike pass. Can you foot the bill? Oh, I'm not done yet. Can you also give me safe passage? And what does it say? The king granted my request, and don't miss the why, for the gracious hand of my God was on me. He knew God had brought his attention to a need. He knew that God was stirring. I don't know how you can do this, but God, you're not going to set me up for failure. And he took a risk. And if God doesn't just want up him, all the stuff he asks the king does, but don't miss the last part. It says the king what? He didn't even ask for this. The king had also sent officers of the infantry and cavalry with me. Let me get you a protection motorcade to make sure you get there safely. God's like, let me show you my goodness. He seeks out the means. How often do we limit ourselves and say, man, I just, I'm not skilled. I don't have the means. I can't afford this. I can't do this. I don't know how to do this. We make excuses. Or here's my favorite one. Uh, let me just be transparent. How, how often do we say, isn't that what we pay Eric for? I'm not taking shots. I'm just speaking. Hey, easy. Listen, yes, my calling is to help you with this, but don't miss what my calling is. Listen to what Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 12 says. Paul would say this. And he, being God, himself gave some to be apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Why? to equip the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. God, God has called his church to do the work. God has called his church to do it. In other words, listen, you have a calling to leverage what you have and are gifted with. And too often we belittle the power of God and say, I don't have enough. It's, it's just, it's just, this is just I have. Do you know how many just happen all throughout Scripture? It was just a young boy named David who had a slingshot and a few stones and said, this is all I got, but I'll give it a try. It was just a young man who said, hey, Jesus, man, I got some, some fish and some loaves. What can you do with this? And Jesus fed 5,000. It was just Peter who made a fool of himself time and time again, says, I just have this word for the Lord, and stood up in Acts chapter 2 and started the church, and some 3,000 people came to save. Don't say it's just whatever. God can use your just to do a lot. The question is, are we going to be faithful? The reality is most of us are scared to put ourselves in the line because we're worried of the risk. And can I tell you, anytime you risk, there's a cost. There's always a cost. But it's a cost to follow Jesus, to put yourself out there and say, you know what, I may look like a fool. I may make a mistake. Make no mistake, Nehemiah right here, by speaking up, being, his job was to give the king his wine and to keep him happy. And he walks him sad, weeping in his wine. Like, do you understand what's going on? He could be killed for this, and he took a risk. He kept going. Don't underestimate the risk you took. See, ultimately, when we read Nehemiah, we see this. We see what it looks like to take ownership. And the big idea is this, is God's people are called to take ownership in God's kingdom. God's people are called to take ownership in his church. And when we did this several years ago, the theme was this, we can do more together. If you're expecting one or two people to do everything at the church in the kingdom of God, listen, we will fail. God has called up the body of Christ to be a part of the work. And you might limit yourself and say, I can't do this. Listen, if God, is, if God is making you realize of needs and he's stirring in you, 
He's asking you to take initiative. He's asking you to find a way to make it work. And listen, you will be amazed at what he does time and time again. Don't, don't make me a mistake. Nehemiah was not a qualified person this. What was he saying in verse 11? At the time what? I was a cupbearer to the king. I'm not a leader. I'm not an infantry guy. I'm not a priest. I'm not a carpenter. I'm not a leader. I'm not wealthy. He's like, I'm a cupbearer to the king, but God is stirring something in me. He, he doesn't let what he's not keep him from doing what he can. Let me say it like this. God can do more with a willing amateur than a reluctant expert. And God, time and time again, shows his power and his might by blessing willing people. He did it here. Can, can you imagine, you might like, hey, can I, can I have your, your money? Can I have time off? Can I have your chariots? Can I have your podcast? I, and God just says, take it, and blesses him time and time again. And many of us look at this like, well, these are Bible stories. This doesn't happen in real life. Can I tell you, I've seen this happen time and time and time again. We were up in Afton, a small town, about 1,000 people. You know how much money is in Afton? About that much, not much. We had to pinch pennies to make things work. I'll never forget, we're up there, and we had a rocking children's ministry. We had some 100 kids come on Wednesday night, and the big reason why all these children came on Wednesday night is because we fed them, and they didn't get fed at home. And that was a short-term thing. We can't afford to feed 100 kids. Every, like, we can't afford this. And so we're sitting like, what are we going to do? And there's this old guy that came to church that honestly just sat in the back row. He, he never really did much. And, and whatever reason, God stirred in him that thing. He didn't have any money. He didn't have any connections. He didn't have any means. But he said, I want to do something. His name was Leonard Stotts. And so he began to call around and says, God, I don't know what you want to do. And he found this place in Tulsa. And there was this uh, place in Tulsa where they took a bunch of damaged and used or whatever uh, 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 food stuff from, from grocers and stuff. And they had a whole warehouse bigger than this building full. And they said, if you can bring it on a trailer, we will load up your trailer every time you want with as much food as you want. He went down his first time, brought back his trailer with his, tr- his truck way down. I mean, it was literally bone down, brought it back. We had food every single week for those kids. So much so that every Friday we had to open up a kitchen just to give away the excess. And I tell you this, listen, it took one person just saying, you know what, what can you do with me, God? He didn't have money. He was not a gifted speaker. He had no leadership qualities that I had seen, but he was willing. And I just think in our church, man, what, what would God do with a small handful of people who said, hey, what do you want me to do here, God? I, I see a need in this area of the church. I see, I see a missing this in the church. I see this missing in our world. What, what can you do with me? My, my question to you is this. How and where is God stirring in you? What, what are those things that you have felt the need to come and talk to me and said, Eric, we really need to fill in the blank. And, and let's, just, let's just, I'm just going to be brutally honest. When you say we, you, you don't mean you. You're, you're wanting me to, and, I, and listen, I, I want to. But the more I do this job, the more I'm learning my limits the more I'm learning what I can't do. And the beauty of the growth we see in the church has nothing to do with me. It's what God's using other people for. The truth is this, listen, we we can do more together, but it starts with you taking ownership. And so my question is this, is this your church? Is, Is this your ministry in action? Is the Great Commission your calling, or is it someone else's? Because we have a lot of renters say, God, as soon as you call me up, I'll do it. No, God's calling everyone up. The question is, will you do it? And so what are you going to do? 
Are you going to do something? Do you, do you see, like, what's, what's stopping you? Are you waiting for permission? Are you waiting for me to bless you and go? You're blessed. There, it's done. Do it. Go. Like, what's stopping you? I believe God has more in store in our church and in in, in what's here, but, but he needs people. The harvest is plentiful, the works are few. Are we going to do anything? And so I pray that for you as church members, God's stirring something in you. I don't know what it is, but I have a hard time believing God's not stirring something in you that you realize you need to do something about it. And the question is, what will you do? What will you do? Now, we have guests in the room right now, and you're hearing this story right now, and you're going, is that really what this is about? Is this a feel-good message about trying to get people to step up and do more in the church? So it is. Can I tell you what Nehemiah's about? Nehemiah's about God's redemption story that has taken place. God is in the business of redeeming his people, and once he redeems them, he has them be a part of the work of redeeming others. And can I tell you the beauty? The beauty of redemption is this. The story of redemption is for you. And it points to a man named Jesus Christ who came and lived a perfect life, the Son of God, who loved you so much that he gave his one only son on your behalf. That's the truth for you. And we're all partakers in trying to help you get to that point and respond to that message. And so here in a second, I'm going to pray. The band's going to come up, and we're going to have time to reflect and respond. I'm going to have elders, leaders, and I'm going to have other leaders available for you to go pray with, to talk with. Maybe God's leading you to do something, and you need the holy conviction in your life to tell someone so that you can be held accountable to it. Maybe that's what needs to happen to you today. Or, or some of you in the sound of my voice need to realize that the redemption story we're talking about is what God wants to do in your life, and that hasn't taken place yet. You've not responded to the truth of God, the gospel. And today you need to do that. So I'm going to ask if you do this, if you'd bow your heads and close your eyes and take a second and allow the Lord to stir in your heart whatever God is stirring. And I use that word very seriously in that sense that where God stirs, God calls. And for some of you today, God is stirring for you to do something. I don't know what it is. Maybe I do. Will you be faithful to do something about it? Some of you, God is stirring right now salvation. You realize you don't know this Jesus I'm talking about, and God is calling you to himself right now through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's trying to get your attention. The question is, will you respond? I can tell you the truth I've learned from my life. The moment you walk out of the doors, if you don't talk to someone do something about it, you will forget it and go right back to what you're doing. And so you need to respond today. And so as I pray, I'm going to ask you to respond. I have leaders available. You'll see them in the front with lanyards. You'll see them in the back. Please respond. Father God, I love you. I thank you for the example of Nehemiah. God, I pray you would stir in this congregation, stir in these people, stir us to action. God, let us not be a people living by excuses, limitations. God, let us be a people that are known by a holy and powerful God that wants to do something amazing even through people who feel insignificant. There are many in this room, God, I know who are saying, I'm just a cupbearer to the king. I'm a nobody. And you're saying, no, you're somebody because I called you. Help them to be obedient. I pray for the sound of my voice who have never asked you into their heart, who have never, don't understand what it means to be saved, don't even know what they need to be saved from. God, I pray you would stir them just to come ask. Let the curiosity stir in them right now help them come talk to one of our leaders and say, what, what is Eric talking about? The need for salvation. And help them to find the true joy that we this, that make this all possible. 
God, I thank you so much because you allow us to be part of your work and you just don't do it all yourself. You allow your people, your redeemed people to partake in your ministry. And help us not to waste that opportunity. I thank you for conviction when it's needed. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand. Uh, we're going to have a time of worship. And if you feel a leading to respond, you feel like you need to talk to someone, I have Pete, one of our elders. I have JD over here. Uh, I got others in the back that will be available. You, you respond. Come talk to one of us. We would love nothing more than to